I'm just going to quickly chat with you about what the kingdom means because it's essential. When Matthew is saying the good news of the kingdom or Jesus is announcing the kingdom, he's not announcing a place. He's not announcing a geographical place or he's not even talking about the present heaven, which we don't know obviously where it is, being some far distant place. He's talking about a, a different dimension of reality that's actually very close. So in scripture, the kingdom typically means dominion or rule. It's not spatial. He's not saying go over there on this side of the world and you'll see the the beginnings of the kingdom of God. He's not saying, you know, you fly out past our solar system and out there somewhere. He's talking about an area that is under the dominion and rule of God. For us in our personal worlds, we all have our own kingdom. And our kingdom uh, is made up of those things with which we have say over. So my wife has a kingdom which is in her purse, which I'm not allowed to really dig into. I did the other day looking for one of her cards, and she quickly ran over, and she said, I have this organized the way I like it. Don't touch it. It's my kingdom. She didn't say that part, but that's kind of what it is, right? This is my space. I get to say what happens here. I get to determine what goes on here. We each have our own kingdoms. It's that place where we determine what we will do or say or be, what decisions we're making, how we determine to live, what we value and what we choose. That's our kingdom. And likewise, God has a kingdom. God's kingdom, the the best way that I've heard this described is from Dallas Willard. And he says, God's kingdom is the effective range of his will. It's where what God wants done is done. That's why Jesus could say, if I cast out a demon by the finger of God, the kingdom of God has come. Why? Because the will and desire of God is being accomplished in the present and in the moment. That's why he could say when he was healing people, the kingdom of God is here. Why? Because this is the heart of God for these people. This is the will of God and the desire of God. Therefore, the kingdom of God is present. That's what Jesus means by kingdom. That's generally uh, the, the way kingdom is referred to in scripture. So it's not a political or geographic statement. It's not a place. It's where what God wants done is done. So then we have a question or, or a confrontation. Are there areas of our kingdom where we want to do things the way we want or determine things to be the way we determine them that is in confrontation with God's kingdom? Whose desire wins out? So we do things in our life all the time. All of us do, right? We do things to satisfy our kingdom and push out the kingdom of God. And what Jesus is going to bring us into in the Sermon on the Mount is a recognition of the culture and the DNA of the kingdom of God. This is the way it looks. This is the way it thinks. This is the way it responds and reacts. This is what's going on in the heart of it. And Jesus is going to call us to have the humility 
to confront and face those areas in our heart, our attitudes, our speech, our life that are out of alignment with God's desire, where our kingdom needs to be yielded to his kingdom. He gives us a choice, and the choice is ours. I want to read you this quote from N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar. Jesus grew up in the shadow of kingdom movements. The Romans had conquered his homeland about 60 years before he was born. There were They were the last in a long line of pagan nations to do so. They had installed Herod the Great and then his sons after him as puppet monarchs to do their dirty work for them. Most Jews in Jesus' time resented both parts of this arrangement and longed for a chance to revolt against the Roman occupation they were living under. But they weren't just eager for freedom in the way that most subjected people are. They wanted it because of what they believed about God, themselves, and the world. If there was one God who had made the whole world, and if they were his special people, then it couldn't be God's will to have pagan foreigners ruling over them. So this was the, again, we got to get this. This is the cultural temperature of Jesus' day. The People are waiting for the Messiah, and in the forefront of their minds, the Messiah means overthrowing Rome politically. It means accomplishing my political agenda because I I can't reconcile in my mind how God would ever allow these people to have dominion and rule over us. That's what Jesus, literally the people he's healing and the people he's ministering to, this is their predominant worldview, that we need freedom from the oppressor in this way. We need political freedom and liberty. And now Jesus was declaring that God's kingdom, I'm back to Tom Wright's quote, the sovereign rule of heaven was approaching like an express train. The kingdom of God is coming, Jesus said. Jesus believed that his contemporaries were going in the wrong direction. They were bent on revolution of the standard kind, military resistance to occupying forces, leading to a takeover of power. Part of the underlying theme of his temptations in the wilderness was the suggestion that he should use his own status as God's Messiah to launch some kind of movement that would sweep him to power, privilege, and glory. Isn't that what the devil came to tempt him with? Just bow down to me, and I'll give you all these kingdoms. The devil knows that he has authority. Jesus knows it. What the devil is trying to do is subvert the culture of the kingdom. He's saying to Jesus, just take it now. It's yours anyway. Just bypass all that suffering. Bypass all that meekness and humility and surrender. Bypass all of that obedience and faithfulness to God and just take it because it's yours. You deserve it. That's what the devil was doing in part. Tom continues, and this is a salient statement I'm going to make. Well, he makes it. I'm just repeating it. The problem with all of these movements is that they were fighting darkness with darkness. They wanted freedom, but they wanted to use the tools of the kingdom of darkness to try and somehow advance the agenda of the kingdom of God, of of light. 
And Jesus sees through this masquerade and this facade, and he goes, no. I'm not going to use the tools of the kingdom of darkness to try and gain freedom in the kingdom of light. And yet, you and I do that all the time. Right? When we're, and I'm like this, we're impatient and frustrated. And we just, we want things to be made right. And we want things to be set properly. And, and so then we initiate ourselves and we sign ourselves up to bring transformation and change. And we, we then uh, you know, co-opt others into that and we, we say, Jesus, I want your kingdom, but I don't want the culture that comes with it. I don't want the need to persevere under pressure and trial. I don't want the patience that you talk about in Galatians 5. I don't, I don't want that long suffering. I'm tired. I'm, I'm exhausted. I just want what I need now. The trouble was that many of Jesus' contemporaries, those sitting around him in this Sermon on the Mount, were eager to get on with the fight. His message of repentance was not, therefore, that they should feel sorry for their personal and private sins, though he would, of course, want that, but that was a, that as a nation they should stop rushing toward the cliff edge of violent revolution and instead go the other way toward God's kingdom of light and peace and healing and forgiveness for themselves and for the world. This is written by N.T. Wright in 2016. See, what Jesus is beginning to offer in the Beatitudes is an overview of the culture of the kingdom of God. The culture that begins with our inner life. Not just what we do, but how we do it. Not just what we say, but the attitudes and the heart motivation that are found behind what we say. And to the restless people on the side of the mountain, Jesus is offering a different perspective of life. When Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's not just talking about evangelism, he's talking about the heart of man and our need to be yielded and surrendered to the way of Jesus, not just the what of Jesus, to the attitude and the culture of Jesus. So the kingdom of God that Jesus is giving us in these Beatitudes is a radical reversal of the values of the kingdoms of the world, right? And we, we see this, it's all around us. You could go through a list right now and say, what are the, what are the kingdoms, quote unquote, of the world value, right? Independence, rule your own life, make your own decisions, stand up for yourself, fight for yourself, conquer, overpower, gratify your desires. Anything you want, you should be able to have, right? Isn't that what self-love is? I just give myself what I want. I don't withhold anything from myself. Or I want image or prestige or influence, authority, position, power, money, wealth, whatever it is, these are all cultural values of the kingdoms of the world. But Jesus' culture stands in stark contrast to that. We value self-worship. Our, our Western culture, like let's just be honest, I'm including myself in this. 
I think in our moment right now, what I see being exposed in my own life and in our Western culture is a deep narcissism. We believe that we are the center of the universe. We do. And when our wants and desires are not met, we throw a temper tantrum. When we're inconvenienced, when I gotta wait in line at Starbucks for five extra minutes, oh my goodness, it's like the apocalypse might as well just come, right? Like our culture is, is what's being revealed in this season is our deep narcissism and our self-centeredness. Let's just be honest. We, we won't be able to actually move forward and grow into maturity with Christ unless we're willing to humble ourselves and admit that we're all a part of this system, this, as Paul says, the spirit of the age, this zeitgeist. And Jesus is challenging. He's like head-on challenging that. And he's saying, repent and turn to God because there's a kingdom coming and it's like, it's an express, it's a bullet train in Japan. And if you're not going with it, if you're not bringing yourself into alignment with it, there's gonna be problems and consequences for you. Let me just quickly cover this because I don't, I, don't think we can, I don't think we can come back to the basics enough. Certainly in my life, I feel like that's pertinent right now. You all okay? I'm a bit hot up here. Are you guys okay? <laughs> I gotta be, that's why I have to wear black every week or else it just, I just look like a gross, sweaty old man. All right. <laughs> I still might, but... <laughs> All right, so let's just come back to some basics, okay? Jesus is talking about the kingdom, the Beatitudes, and the Sermon on the Mount are Jesus' expression of the culture. This is what it looks like and what it sounds like and what it feels like. And But Jesus' call is to repent. Again, repentance is not an emotive word. Emotion can be a part of it, but repentance is not even feeling sorry. Repentance is not coming to the altar and crying, although that can be a part of it. Repentance is determining to change our direction and our thinking. Repentance is actually a verb. It's an action word. It means stop doing what you're doing that is not lining up with God's heart for you. It means like radical stuff like, hey, guys or girls, if you're addicted to pornography, set up some accountability on your computer. Or even better yet, just Get rid of your internet. I know that seems like crazy and illogical, but, but the heart of repentance and the heart of turning to God is that radical, like, God, there's nothing I won't do to bring my life in alignment with you. I recognized over this summer that I was just wasting a lot of time just scrolling internet like, uh, or Instagram. I felt like God convicting me and saying, Andrew, you're not using your time well. Like, you're tired like everybody else is. You're emotionally and mentally tired. You're tired of thinking about what's coming next and, you know, how to navigate the world around us and how to do this and how to do that. And so you just, you zone out and you just scroll. And I just felt like the Holy Spirit was convicting me and saying, I want you to go off. So repentance is me actually doing that. It's 
removing all social accounts from my phone and saying, I'm, I'm just, I'm done. I'm, I'm for a season. I don't know how long it is. It doesn't even matter. But Jesus' repentance is actually doing the opposite of what I was doing to dis, you know, distract myself from the life you've called me to. That's what repentance is. It's actually making different decisions about what you value most. It's being willing to take out the scalpel and go, I'm cutting that out of my life. That unhealthy relationship. You know, guys and girls, if, if you're dating and you're, you're going too far in intimacy, repentance is actually putting the brakes on and saying, we're done, like hard line. We're not doing this anymore. We're not just going to keep fooling around and then feeling sorry about it and feeling guilt and remorse, but then just keep doing it. We're going to stop doing it. And we're going to put mechanisms in place in our life that give us accountability and structure so that we can walk in alignment with the heart of God. That's what repentance means. Changing your direction and your thinking. Jesus says, repent from your sin. What does sin mean? Again, we've, we've got to come back to this. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means missing the mark or deviating from the goal. So start putting these two together, repentance and sin. Right? So repentance is a need to get back on course, to turn direction and go a different way. Sin is missing the mark or deviating from it or overextending the boundaries that God has put in place. Sin is going beyond the boundary. He says, stop here, and you just keep walking on by. So sin is breaking through that boundary that God sets in our life and overstepping his set limits. So when Jesus says, repent from your sin, he says, turn direction from those areas in your life where you're missing the mark of God where he's saying, hey, I have a greater purpose for you than involving yourself in this whatever dysfunctional relationship or behavior or habit. I have a, I have a greater calling and purpose on your life. You're missing the mark. You're, you're shooting and it's going over there, but I'm over here, so turn around and face me and leave that stuff behind. Walk away from it. Sin is just missing the mark. Sin is not uh, God being disgusted with you. It's God's not disgusted with you. God doesn't tolerate sin. He's holy. And his invitation is not to say, you disgusting person, you disgust me the way you do this. It's to say, look, I'm over here. And I'm inviting you. My hands are open. My arms are open. I'm inviting you to walk toward me. Here's where life is. Here's where the kingdom is. And we see this word repentance and repenting from sins all through the New Testament. Roughly 53 times it's mentioned, repent from your sin. So that's the entryway into the culture of heaven is one of repentance, of humbling ourselves acknowledging our need for God and saying, hey, look, I've been walking in this direction, in this relationship, or in this behavior, or in this heart attitude, or I've been harboring bitterness and unforgiveness, or maybe even hatred towards somebody, but God, I want to walk in a new direction. I, I want to actually turn from that and head towards you. That's the call of God. That's the beginning of the culture of the kingdom of God. 
Well, Jesus said the kingdom's coming. And then the Beatitudes are, here's how to begin to recognize it. These are the norms of the kingdom. So if we're to repent from our sin and turn to God, we have to know how we can recognize then what is the culture of the kingdom of God versus the culture of our world or our own flesh. To be under the rule and reign of God is to be in sync with his kingdom. It's to recognize the things in our heart and in our attitudes and in our relationships that are out of alignment with him. So that word blessed in our Bibles, it's a tricky word to translate and I'm not a Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination. I just read books from much smarter people than myself. But that word blessed means fundamentally to be approved of or to find the approval of God. There are other ways that scholars have translated some, maybe in some of your Bibles, they use the word happy. So that word that Jesus is using here, again, it's not a feeling word. It's actually a description of who is blessed by God, who's approved by God. What kind of attitudes and heart postures are approved by God? The scholar D.A. Carson says this, since this is God's universe, there can be no higher blessing than to be approved by God. We must ask ourselves whose blessing we diligently seek. If God's blessing means more to us than the approval of loved ones, no matter how cherished, or of colleagues, no matter how influential, then the Beatitudes will speak to us very personally and deeply. So this word blessed is not about how you feel about yourself. So what Jesus is not saying is, hey everyone, you have to endeavor for the rest of your life to feel horrible about yourself. (laughs) You've gotta work hard to attain this virtue. These aren't virtues to be attained. Many people through church history, through the last few thousand years have have taken this to mean different things. Some people take it as a vow of poverty, like what God is asking me to do is be poor, literally. Dirt poor, but that's not what Jesus is saying here. Or to be lowly and depressed and humble and woe is me and I'm no good at this and I'm no good at that. That's not what he's saying either. He's saying congratulations when you find yourself totally desperate for God and dependent on him. Congratulations when you recognize your absolute need for God. When when you recognize that you can't make it on your own, that you have no righteousness of your own to merit anything good from God. Congratulations when you feel like you're at the bottom of the barrel. Congratulations when you feel like you're a failure and you'll never measure up. Congratulations because the kingdom is present for you. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's doing it again. He's healing people. He's, he's, he's restoring them. These are people that are in abject poverty. And he's saying, look, I'm going to heal you. The kingdom of God is coming on your life, and you didn't need to earn it. At its core, this is a, 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 a statement, a theological statement of the grace of God. Like you can't earn it or work for it. 
but it's there for you. And at that very moment when you feel like nothing is going right, when you are desperate for God, the kingdom of God is there to meet you in that. Daryl Johnson, a, a pastor in Vancouver, he's a prophet regent there, he kind of sequentially works this meaning of blessed down into a few words. He says, congratulations. I, the favorite phrase I like that he uses is, you lucky bums. <laughs> you lucky bums, guess what you get? You get the kingdom and all of its fullness in your life. Guess what you get, you lucky bum? I love that. He goes on to say, right on or right side up, that's what blessed means. Or in alignment or in sync with, that's what the word blessed means. That word for poor in spirit that Jesus uses in the Greek is the strongest word. So there were two words in the Greek that they used for poor, and one is like the working poor. So you're living paycheck to paycheck, you're working, but you're not getting ahead, you're just surviving. That's not the word Jesus uses here. The other word for poor is those that are so destitute, they're forced to beg. They have no means whatsoever of providing for themselves. That's the word that Jesus uses here. Blessed are the destitute, the beggars in spirit. Blessed are you when you're begging God for mercy and his presence and his kingdom in your life. When you recognize you need him so desperately. Blessed are you when you humble yourself before him and say, God, I'm, I'm bringing nothing to the table here. If anything good is happening in my life, it's all from you. That word that Jesus uses in the Greek is describing people that are so destitute they're forced to beg. Isaiah uses similar words. Solomon does in Proverbs 16, it's better to be of lowly spirit with the poor than to divide the spoil with the proud. In Isaiah 57, 15, the high and lofty ones who live in eternity, the holy one says this, I live in the high and holy place with those whose spirits are contrite and humble. I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. Isaiah 66, 2, my hands have made both heaven and earth. They and everything in them are mine. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. So poverty of spirit, this first beatitude of Jesus, is a description of a heart posture where we confess our total need for God in all things. Like in my financial life, God, I need you. In my relational life, I need you. I need you. I can't save myself. I can't fix my problems. I can't conjure things up to make things better for myself. I'm totally dependent on you. This confronts even our desire to structure and plan our future and control it. So it's not a demand of Jesus's to stir up self-hatred in our life or false humility or piety. These aren't virtues to live up to that we could never do that. These are character traits of the kingdom of God. 
In Luke 6, Jesus adds woes to these, and I just want to just quickly go over them because they set the contrast for us. What sorrow awaits you who are rich for you have only your happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds for their ancestors also praised the false prophets. So what is Jesus doing? He's reshaping radically what we value and what we place our trust in. He's saying, look, like these are the values of the kingdoms of the world but the values of the kingdom of God are different. The nature of the kingdom of God is different. So Jesus is saying, congratulations. When you find yourself totally dependent on God, when you're backed into that corner and you finally admit, God, I need you, congratulations. The kingdom of God is at hand and present. This description of the culture of heaven is Jesus outlining for us the reality, the, the amazing reality, the hope that we have that as we find ourselves at the bottom of the totem pole of life, as we find ourselves in desperate need, the kingdom of God is present. He's not asking you to shape up before you come to him. He's not requiring uh, you, you to pay penance to him, like, hey, you just do, you know, 16 Hail Marys, and then you can come to me. He's not saying that. He's not saying get your life together and your act straight before you come back to me or back to church. He's saying in your brokenness, in your desperate need, in your total poverty of spirit, in your humility, come to me, and I'll meet you in that place, and I will do things in your life that you could never imagine. And so we see Matthew is painting this picture of Jesus giving us the show and tell. Here's what the kingdom looks like. I'm, I'm going to heal your body physically. I'm going to set you free from demonic oppression. And then I'm going to tell you, here's the culture of the kingdom of God. Begin to see that in your heart and in your life. And I'm just going to get Ben to come up as we close here this morning. I think this first beatitude gives us a moment to just, just pause and just simply ask God, what am I trusting in today? What have I placed my hope in or my trust in that is out of alignment with you and your kingdom? Maybe you're trusting in your pension or you're planning for retirement or you're trusting in the nest egg you have built up or you're trusting in your ability to kind of be a good people person and to manage relationships well or you're trusting in your own giftedness or your own strength. Maybe you're trusting in your sense of justice and the question that I think Jesus is inviting us to ask is, are any of those things out of alignment with me? In your heart, do you think of yourself as self-sufficient, a self-made person, ruler of your own destiny, controller of your own future? Or do you recognize that without God, you can do nothing? 
that unless he shows up and invades your kingdom and invades your space, that it's just vain repetition over and over. Maybe you're here and you've tried every which way. You've tried yoga, meditation. You've tried all of these things that are really just false knockoffs of the kingdom of God. You've tried it all and it maybe works for a little season, but then you find yourself back in that same spot again where you're just starting over. God, how do I deal with life and this stuff? The invitation of Jesus is to humble yourself. I think as a church, in North America, we are struggling with that right now. We've built these great organizations and structures and we've leveraged technology and we've done all of this stuff and we were reaching people and we're, we've got these gazillion dollar campuses and all of these things and there's nothing wrong or inherently wrong with those but sometimes those are an avenue to shift our trust away from God and onto what we can do how we can manage life and so the invitation of Jesus is to let go of the reins of managing your life. Maybe another question would be, what have you built around you to protect you? What have you constructed around your relationships to guard and protect you? Maybe from hurt, wounding? What have you put in place to create sort of a safe barrier for yourself or what have you put in place or built around you to protect you from uncertainty in the future or maybe a last question would be what have you adopted what definitions of success or health or prosperity or whatever, what have you adopted from the world that Jesus is inviting you to exchange? Jesus is offering a description of a radical alternative where repentance and humility are the foundation of life in the kingdom. Maybe in your heart, if you're like me even, you have to be on and monitoring your thoughts toward government or maybe you're, you're, you're actually have developed bitterness in your heart or pride, self-righteousness. These are real realities for all of us. I wouldn't do it that way. I'd be way better at leading this or that. <laughs> I don't even know how to lead my own life most of the time let alone this church or let alone something bigger. But there's self-righteousness and pride that creeps in. Bitterness, resentment, judgment. And Jesus is saying that 
the entryway into the culture of the kingdom of God is humility. Father, who am I to make a judgment call or assessment of someone else's life before I've allowed you to examine my own? Who am I, Father, to think that I can control and mitigate every possible outcome of my life and, and create you know, a safe pathway? Who am I to do that, God? Who am I to say what's even gonna happen tomorrow? That's why Jesus says, don't make plans for tomorrow. You don't know what a day is gonna bring forth. Who are we to be so sure of ourselves? The entryway to the culture of the kingdom of God is humility. Jesus, I don't have tomorrow in the palm of my hand, but you do. So more than anything, what I want is to hear your heart for my life today. More than anything, what I need is to hear you speak over my family today or over my work or my relationships today or over this area of my heart and my soul where I'm out of alignment with you, where there's hardness and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness and rebellion. And Jesus, today, I, that's what I need you to deal with. I'm, I'm going to release tomorrow into your hands. I'm going to release my desire to control and manipulate and manhandle people and situations to over power them and, and produce outcomes that, that I'm comfortable with. I'm releasing that to you in humility. I'm recognizing my total need for you. And the invitation of the kingdom of God is to live like that every day. Father, give me a heart of faithfulness today, but let me trust you for tomorrow. Let me live in the security of your goodness today and trust you with my fears for tomorrow. Father, we need to trust you with our brokenness even. We need to trust you with our relationships that have gone haywire and to hell in a handbasket. And instead of trying to, you know, put our foot on the gas and fix things and make them right. God, we just recognize first our own need for you. As a church, we recognize our need for you. We can't produce growth without you. We can't change anybody's life without you. My words are hollow and meaningless without you, Holy Spirit. So call us back to humility, to repentance, and getting in alignment with the culture of heaven.